at your uh, lesson notes, this is good to be back down here. Uh, The flood has abated and the carpet is dry and we've escaped that uh, uh, problem. But uh, it was good to see you guys uh, last week and in spite of the storm. And we had a good lesson here on hell. Yes, it matters. Again, you got to be careful how you say that title so you make sense. But we looked at uh, eight reasons why it really does matter what we believe about hell and whether Jesus is the only way. And you see in your notes that what this series is about is three questions in one. The one question we're asking is this, and read it with me. It's there in your notes. Is Jesus the only way to salvation? Okay, I did good on that. I want you to do better on that. Read that with me. Is Jesus the only way to salvation? In that one question, we said there are three questions. Read these three questions that we'll be addressing in this series. So read the first one with me. Will anyone... I just heard myself. Let's try that again. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that, are they not on there? Oh, I'm sorry. I forgive me. I'm looking at my notes. Will anyone experience... Well, you know... I would like to think it's always because the question isn't in front of you, but that's not always the the giveaway. Uh, So, you know, if if, if you would always respond, then I would know that it's not there. But uh, the the response is often the same, no matter whether the question is there or not. Here's the three questions. Will anyone experience eternal conscious torment under God's wrath in hell? We're going to address that next week. Second question. Is the work of Jesus necessary for salvation, not just for Christians, but for for all people. Third question, is conscious faith in Jesus necessary for salvation? Now, where are we going in this series? You have that, don't you? Do you have that? All right, read that with me. Create, surface, and detect erosion. And I give God the glory. He is already doing that. Already, uh, I've gotten feedback from some who have talked. You know what? I see where I've drifted and I see where I've embraced some of this and and I'm I'm becoming aware of it. That is a glorious thing. And uh, that's what we want to do. We want to realize that these issues are out there. There is confusion. There is tension. And it's legitimate. And really, listen to me. If you care about people And if you believe what the Bible says about these issues, there ought to be a tension in your heart. There ought to be a desire. Lord, I wish this wasn't true. Lord, this is hard for my human uh, mind to comprehend. And and that is healthy. You know, sometimes we think uh, being a faithful believer means there's no tension, there's no confusion, there's no questions, and that's just not the case. And uh, in fact, I'm more concerned when there are none of those things. Because it, I, I fear it means we're not thinking or we have simplistic answers and we're just going about our merry way thinking all is great. Well, it's all right to have these kind of tensions. We want to clear away the confusion, replace it with conviction and compassion in Christ. We want to stop any erosion with a Christ-like motivation. So why is this series important? We looked at Four of the reasons last week. Number one, believing and obeying the Bible hangs in the balance. We taught that. We emphasized that. I think you see. We can read Piper's quote. If we cut loose from the anchor of God's word, we will not be free. We will be slaves of personal passions, popular trends, and I would add 
political correctness. Once you cut yourself from the Word of God and say, you know what, I'm going to come up with my own opinions, you are on, tossed to and fro on a sea of popular fads, trends, and political correctness that will wreck you. It will wreck you and it will wreck you for ministry. Secondly, we saw a genuine love for God and others hangs in the balance. And we said the key to that is it's all about how you define love. The world says, share this narrow message of a narrow way, and you're arrogant and hateful. God says, share it with humility, and you're showing true love for people. The third reason we saw was that salvation of people in other religions hang in the balance. And one of the good feedback I got from our group, uh, we've been discussing these lessons in our iLife group, was the impact of these verses. So I I do want to read these. The salvation of people in other religions hangs in the balance. Here's the thing. We'll have a whole lesson on this. How looking up at the creation, looking up at God's creation doesn't lead anyone to salvation. In fact, it shows and condemns them to an eternity without God. What saves people is the special revelation that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Let me just read again some of these passages. And you can turn to them in your Bible if you'd like. 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Jesus came into the world, not into Jerusalem or Judea, but he came into the total world to save all sinners. First Timothy two, First Timothy two, one uh, chapter uh, verse five. First Timothy two verse five. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. That is all people. The man Christ Jesus. This links with the first reason about the Bible. Listen, if there's more than one way, then the Bible is untrue. And not only is the Bible untrue, but Jesus is untrue because He said there was one way in John 14, 6. Listen to what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Listen to Acts 4.12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven. Wow, under heaven. What does it, what's under heaven? What? Everything is under heaven. That, that excludes no... Every nation, every people, every language, every tongue is under heaven. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then, of course, Romans ten thirteen through 14. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And it goes on, and how will there be a preacher if they are not sent? So here is the truth. The salvation of people in other religions hangs in the balance. Number four, we saw last week, the strengthening of missionary missionaries hangs in the balance. Because here's the thing, we can get in this really ironic situation where 
at the end of this month, in October, at the end of October, we're going to have a world outreach celebration, get all excited about these missionaries, and yet, in our heart of hearts, believe that there's another way, another chance for people who do not hear to be saved. Do you see the irony between those two things? Hey, we think it's great you're going to tell the nations. But in reality, if you don't quite get the job done, there's a second chance. There's another way. Well, see, that's a contradiction. You say, well, I can live with that contradiction. And you're right. You can, but your children won't live with that contradiction. Your children's children will not live with that contradiction. They will say, well, look, Common sense tells me if there's another way, then I don't have to give, I don't have to go, I don't have to pray, because in the end, God is so gracious and loving, He will provide a second chance. In fact, I saw this and Rick mentioned it to me last night on the History Channel. If you saw the History Channel, there had a whole hour or more on hell and had all these views represented, all those pictures, all those second chance. And, 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 uh, and I mentioned this, but it really hit Rick when he was watching this, that yes, there's a second chance not only for people, but even for the devil and his demons. Well, listen, the strengthening of our missionaries hangs in the balance. If we really believe what the Bible says, and we really believe there's only one way, then listen, the end of October is the most important week, perhaps, in our entire year. Because our World Outreach Celebration is an opportunity for us to align our time and our money and our lives and our energy and our calendars to what we really believe, that there is no other way except through Jesus Christ. So we need to help these people, the Smiths, the Grits, the Gandys, and the other Smiths. <laughs> we need to help these people get out and do what needs to be done. Well, there's more we can say on that, and perhaps we'll, we'll say more on it when we get to the specific lesson. But right now, let me say this. Hell... You say it with me. Yes, it matters. It matters what you believe. So let's look at, at reason number five. Persevering in our own salvation hangs in the balance. Persevering in our own salvation hangs in the balance. Now, this might be a little bit of a surprise. We may think, well, wait a minute, I'm secure in my salvation. I thought that once I'm saved, I can never lose my salvation. Right, you can't, as long as you believe in Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. But the moment you change the gospel, you've changed your hope of salvation. And here's the point that the Scriptures emphasize. True believers won't change the gospel. You know, that's, that's like saying, okay, here's the life preserver. I'm out in the ocean. I'm drowning. They throw the life preserver to me. But I think I want to change that life preserver. I want to change it so where it doesn't float so much. I want to change it to where it's not big enough to quite save me. Well, what's going to happen to you? You're still trusting in that, but you're not trusting in the same thing anymore. You've changed it. What's going to happen to you? You're going to go down. Now, if you're truly trusting in something to save you, are you going to, are you going to change it? Are you going to fiddle with it? No, because that's what I'm trusting in. I'm not going to, you know, if I'm out in the, in, in, in the ocean and I'm drowning, I'm not going to mess with the thing that's saving me. 
I'm going to hold tighter to it. I'm not going to let anybody take it from me. I'm not going to let anybody mess with it because it's what it, that's the one who is saving me. Well, don't take my word for it. Let's look at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 10. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 10. We must persevere in the one true gospel if we are going to be saved and if we are going to save others. So let's look at Galatians chapter 1. Now this is the very first letter of Paul. Uh, many believe uh, there's some discrepancies on when it was written. That's fine. But uh, seems to be the earliest letter he wrote after his first missionary journey. And so it's very early in the life of this church, very early in the life in the ministry of Paul. And here's what he says right at the start. And by the way, this is the only church he wrote to that he never gave thanks for. Because here's the deal. You don't give thanks when people are messing with the gospel. When people are messing with the gospel, you deal with the problem of messing with the gospel. There's nothing to give thanks for. Because if you pull the plug on the gospel, what's, what are you doing? <laughs> there won't be anything left. And so here's he dives right in without giving thanks. And he says in verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Someone has come in, false teachers have come in, and they have begun to mess with the life preserver. They have begun to mess with the, with the uh, gospel. And notice it says you have tur- turned away from him. Please understand that when you turn from the gospel, who do you turn from? You turn from Christ. See, here's the thing. Mess with the gospel, mess with Christ. Mess with Christ, you've messed with your salvation. These things are all... We like to compartmentalize. Well, I can believe what I want, and I can still be saved. Wrong. Believers believe in the one true gospel that points to the one true God. Do you see that? That's a very subtle difference in that verse. You've turned from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And then he says, by the way, which is not another, which is not another. So there's not, what, what is he trying to say is, they're preaching another gospel, but it's not the same gospel. And to understand that, in Greek, there's two words for, uh, there, there's words for uh, another, and one word means another of the same kind, another word means another of a different kind. And what he's trying to say here is, look, you've turned away from the true gospel to a different gospel, but please understand, This isn't the same kind of gospel. You've gone from the one true gospel to a false gospel. Notice, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then here comes the kicker in verses 8 and 9. But even if we, even if we apostles who were called by Christ, who saw Christ, who were commissioned and saw Him risen, even if we or an angel from heaven, because what's real popular right now is the idea that people are seeing visions out on the mission field, people who have never heard the name of Christ, missionaries, they're starting to see visions. Well, I'm not here to argue with their experience. All I'm saying is this, you can have a heavenly visitor come to you, but if they preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And accursed means 
go to hell. I mean, that's just literally, just let them be cursed to hell. Isn't it ironic that in this topic of studying about hell, if you mess with the gospel, what happens to you? You go to hell. What happens if you mess with hell? You're messing with the gospel. And so these things are all interrelated, and the very condemnation that comes to you is is, is that you're accursed. Notice verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. He says it twice. And then he says, verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Here's what he's saying. There's pressure on me to preach a different gospel. In fact, because I'm preaching the one true gospel, I'm being told I'm a man pleaser because I'm telling them they don't have to obey the law because the law is fulfilled in Christ. Oh, Paul's giving you the easy way out. Paul's a man pleaser. He's getting you the easy way. Well, in fact, he was given the narrow way. So then he says this, Look, I'm going to fight these guys. I'm going to go against the grain. I'm going to preach the true gospel. Am I pleasing men now? No, I'm getting persecuted for this message. This is not the easy message. And so here's the deal. Every time we diminish the need for the gospel, we diminish the hope of our own salvation. That's the bottom line. You diminish the gospel and its need around the world, you just diminished your own hope for salvation. If we make Christ less important, and by the way, don't we make Christ less important if we say there's another way besides Him? Right? If we make Christ less important by saying, oh, you don't need to know Him, hear Him, hear the message about Him, aren't we diminishing Christ? Yes. And every time we do that, we undercut our own salvation. Every time we make Him less important, we just made our, our, our Savior less important, which makes our salvation less important. Does that make sense? And every time we make less of sin, we make less of God's holiness. And we make less of sin by saying, Oh, you don't need Jesus to die for that sin. God will overlook that. God will do something else. Listen, when we diminish the gospel, we diminish our Savior and our salvation. Now, look at that box. Paul brought up the topic in verse 10 about fear of men and persuading men. And I just want you to see, that's really what's going on. The reason we shrink back from preaching the one way of salvation is because we fear the response of our culture. We live in a consumer-minded culture. And the consume, if the consumer is happy, then we're happy. If the consumer doesn't like our product, what do we do in our culture? If the consumer... What happened to New Coke? Why is there no New Coke? Because the consumer rejected it. Okay? So what does a consumer mentality do with the gospel? Jesus is the only way. Oh, I'm a consumer. I don't like that. What, is, what does a consumer church do? Create a story they'll like. Create a a gospel they'll like. Create a savior they'll like. That's the consumer mentality. Well, we can't have that. We can't fear people like that. We need to preach the one true gospel, whether the consumer likes it or not, because, not because we're arrogant and all-knowing, but because God created them and knows what they really want and what they really need. And what they really need is the true gospel, even if they don't like it. Because there was a time when I didn't like it. Amen?
Was there a time when you didn't like it? Sure there was. There was a time when you rejected it. There was a time when you didn't like it. You wish it would say something else. And yet, because it's true and God changed your heart, you embraced it. Now, look at your notes there. Fear of people leads to passivity. And it leads to conformity to the culture. And it leads to compromise with the culture. And every time we fear people and we become passive, we begin to diminish the gospel. But look on the other side. The gospel is advanced, according to Paul in Galatians 1, when we fear God more than we fear people. When we love God and we love people, and instead of passivity, it brings to us an authority. It brings to us a boldness that says, you know what, I'm going forth with this because I know it's true. And I know it will change people's lives. And notice what Christ gives us when we fear Him and love Him and love people, He gives us a conviction before the culture. And He gives us a compassion for the culture. And so we have to remain to the one true gospel. Listen to this. If we accept a limitation on the universal necessity, sufficiency, and authority of the gospel to be heard and believed, we begin to lose it. And if we lose the gospel, we lose our own souls. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, 21 Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Again, we're on the idea that what we believe about hell and the only way to salvation, what hangs in the balance is persevering in our own salvation. Look at Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And notice what it says. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Now, that's the whole world. That's us. That's us before we're saved. You who were once this way, yet now he has reconciled and that he is Christ in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. But look at verse 23. We tend to look at verse 22 and say, woohoo, that's it. But look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached, and look at this, which was preached to every creature where? Under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. What is he saying? You can't move away from this. I had a professor at Dallas who made it real simple. Believers, believe. What do you got to do to be a believer? You got to believe. And once, if you stop believing in Christ and you stop believing in the one true gospel, then you're no longer a believer. True believers believe. They trust in this one true gospel. But notice, it's the gospel which was preached to every creature under heaven. Now stop for a moment. You ought to be asking a question about that verse. What question should we be asking? Huh? I didn't know it was preached to every creature. Exactly. How? Whoa, wait a minute. How was the gospel preached to every creature at that point in time when, when God had Paul write that? Huh? Well, there wasn't that many people. Well, there's, there certainly wasn't 6.8 billion people. You're right. But there were people who at that time had never heard. Why? Because we know Paul later in Romans, which was written much later, says, look, I want to go to Spain because there's people there who have never heard. So what is going on here? 
Does that, does that create a tension in you? Is the Bible true? Is that just... You know, I, the commentators won't help you much. I looked. They're going to say, well, he's speaking hyperbole. He's exaggerating. Oh, that's nice. That really helps me. We believe in an inspired and errant Word of God. Now, that's either true or it's not true. Now, there is figures of speech. There is hyperbole and exaggeration. I don't think we can... I, I, don't, I, I don't think that's sufficient here. Now, I'd have to take you through the whole book of Colossians, show, but, but here's the bottom line. I believe what Paul means by this is that it was preached to every creature under heaven because the act of Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and ascending to the right hand of the Father is good news from God for every creature under heaven. What he is saying is the event of the gospel was God preaching to every creature under heaven. There is no other way. There is no other hope. This is your Savior. This is your one hope. And it was preached 2,000 years ago, and it's our job to bring it to every creature under heaven because it was preached by God on Golgotha to every creature under heaven. That's what that means. It was proclaimed 2,000 years ago, and that message needs to echo now. The echo of Calvary needs to reverberate around the world so that every living person does hear what God has preached to every creature. Now, does that make sense to you? Does that make sense? The gospel has been preached. It's our job now to proclaim it. And here's the ideal. The universal God... In fact, this ver, this phrase, every creature under heaven, is also used in Acts 2.5 on the day of Pentecost. The same phrase is used to every nation under heaven. What he says was, when the Spirit came down and the church was born on the day of Pentecost, there were Jewish people from every nation under heaven. There's another time when the gospel was proclaimed. And so the point is this, that the universal gospel, this is the universal gospel, the universal hope of salvation for all peoples, all religions, all nations under matter, uh, under, under heaven. Hell? Yes, it matters. Yes, it matters. Reason number six. Reason number six. The enjoyment of of all the benefits of Christ hangs in the balance. The enjoyment of all the benefits of Christ hangs in the balance. Now turn to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. And notice what we find there. Revelation 20 and 21, next to the last chapters of the Bible. And here's what's interesting. Every time we diminish the reality of hell, we diminish the reality of heaven. That's, we just got to understand that. Look, if hell is just a myth and is made up, then what does that do to heaven? It's a myth and it's made up. If hell is not a real place, then folks, heaven is not a real place. And if hell is just a bunch of figures of speech for an abstract, theological, philosophical, religious idea, then Heaven and its streets of gold and all of its promises in the book of Revelation, well, that's philosophical, theological, mumbo-jumbo that is just abstract and we're going to be floating around out there. Is that the heaven you're hoping for? 
I don't think so. Well, look at Revelation 20. Revelation 20 takes us through the judgment of sinners. In fact, we see Satan is bound, and then he's, he's released for one last time, and we, sinners, we see sinners rebelling in verses 7 through 9, and we see Satan is doomed, and the devil uh, is cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. There you have an eternal, conscious suffering in hell for the devil, and the false prophet and the Antichrist. But notice in verses 11 through 15, then we see the great white throne judgment, and we see all the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books are open, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gives up its dead. Death and Hades are delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works, 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And here's the good news. Verse 15. Anyone not found written... Well, this is bad news. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Okay? But the good news is that those who receive Christ get to move into chapter 21, and it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So here's the reality of hell, and now here's heaven coming down on the new creation, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying this, Behold, the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God and God will wipe away their tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. These words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes, perseveres, there you go. He who perseveres shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving... The abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What do we see in these passages? We see this, that you cannot separate hell from heaven. That the same God who promises a literal heaven promises a literal hell. These words are faithful and true. And it is the liar who says, God's word isn't true. There is a second chance. There are other ways to God. You can't take the Bible that literally. You can't. They were, you know, Jesus was limited in what he understood and knew. God says, you're a liar. And hell is the destiny that you will have. Notice what it says in your notes. We cannot separate escaping from hell... Entrance into heaven 
enjoyment of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the people of God and everlasting pleasure of being in God's presence with God's people in God's place. That is all a part of escaping from hell. Listen, escaping from hell is no small thing because those who escape get to enjoy all of God's pleasures. You know, sometimes we diminish thinking... Well, getting out of hell is not that big a thing. The greater motivation is to love God. Well, you can't separate those two. The only reason we would say that getting out of hell is not really that big a motivation is because we either don't understand how bad hell is or we don't believe in it. Because escaping hell is the entrance into the enjoyment of every blessing that God will bring. These are united. Number seven. Hell, yes it matters. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and His redemptive work hangs in the balance. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and His redemptive work hangs in the balance. Here's the point. Every time we diminish the sufferings of hell, we diminish the greatness of God and the glory of Christ on the cross. Every time we suggest there's other ways to God than Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, we diminish the glory of who God is and what He did on the cross. We've got to understand this. Now, hang with me here. You look like you're, you're zoning a little bit. Every time we say there's another way than Jesus. We just shrunk Jesus. How big is your Jesus? How great is your cross? Is the cross sufficient for all people and all nations? Is it the only way? Was he the only substitute? Every time we say there's another way, we just shrunk our Jesus. We just eliminated some of his blood. We just made less of his sufferings. And we just said, that was a cool thing 2,000 years ago. I'm really into it, but you can be into something else. All right? Let's think about it. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. This is a hard one to understand, but it, it was interesting. In, our, in my uh, cohort, uh, we, we had a whole week on the Internet of discussing four views of hell. And you know what the conclusion that, that these six pastors came to? They came to this conclusion. They said, you know, the bottom line is this. If hell's not real, and if we diminish hell and its suffering, we have diminished our Savior and what He did on the cross. And I think that's the greatest conclusion that we can come to. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Uh, Paul is speaking. He says, he, he's, he's talking about unbeliever, and he says, the minds whose minds the God of this age has blinded, and they don't believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Here's the reality. The lost person is blind to the glories of Christ, therefore they don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe He's the Son of God. They're blinded to who He really is. And here's the sad thing is we as believers are letting blind people take the light away from us and make us blind to the glories of Christ when in fact we should be bringing the light to them and shining the light on their blindness so that God perchance in His mercy would make them see. We have a reverse witnessing going on. The darkness 
is witnessing to the light and the light is shrinking. And when we shrink the light of God's word and the true gospel and the realities of hell, we shrink Christ. When in fact we should be enlarging Christ. We should be proclaiming Christ. We should be saying, look, I appreciate what you believe and I once believed that way too. But the light of the gospel of Christ was revealed to me and my Savior's big. He's bigger than your sin. He's bigger than your doubts. He's bigger than your questions. I have a big Savior. He can save the world if we would only share it with them. That's good stuff. And that's what we need to be realizing, that Christ has come to shine light. Listen, here's what it says in your notes. Trusting in Christ alone for salvation, that's how you treasure Christ. Trusting in Him means He's my treasure. I value Him more than anything in the world. He's my only way to salvation. He's what I live for. He's the pearl of great price. I'll sell everything so that I can have Christ. But look at this. If we really treasure Christ then we will proclaim that trusting Christ alone is the only means of salvation. It works both ways. And once we diminish the gospel, we diminish Christ. Hell, what should we say? Yes, it matters. Because number eight, the urgency of the Great Commission hangs in the balance. Listen, there's a reason why Christ said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall go and be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the the ends of the earth. There's a reason why he said, go make disciples of not just all nations, as in many translations, but the word is ethna. The word is people groups. Make it to every people group. Listen, the urgency of the gospel, diminish hell, and you diminish the urgency to witness. Diminish Christ is the only way, and you diminish the urgency to share with your neighbors. I want you to see this video. Brad Powell, he's the pastor of a, a large uh, uh, a mega church. In fact, uh, the outreach uh, is a ministry that lists the 100 largest churches every year and the 100 fastest growing. And uh, Brad's church is on the 100 largest, uh, maybe even on the other list. I don't know. Big church, big pastor, success. And yet, you know what it comes down to? He's going to share, uh, and I listened to this last week on the Internet a couple weeks ago, and it struck me that, you know, no matter how big your church is, the urgency of the gospel is what it all is what it all comes down to. So listen to what listen to what his testimony is. Hey everybody, I'm Brad Powell and I have the privilege of pastoring Northridge Church in Michigan. And I just have to share a story with you that uh that dramatically changed my life after I'd been in ministry for 20 some years. In fact, it's a story that uh I could have never expected, never understood. Started with a phone call. Someone who attended our church at the time um, called and said, wanted me to do a funeral. And, and I, it was kind of a weird call because I don't do funerals, but then he told me the story. His brother in law, um, young guy, three young children, experiencing trouble in his marriage, had been murdered along with his three children and his mother who was caring for the kids at the time. That got my attention. But the real drama in this story, as it related to how it changed me, 
came next. His brother-in-law said that because of the challenges in his marriage and because of having to care for these kids and because this guy was searching for answers and searching for hope and had none, that he had invited him to Northridge Church. Though he had grown up religious, he had never experienced the impacting power of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he started coming here and he engaged the ministry here. In fact, the person on the phone call to me said, I know the chair he was in in your auditorium where he trusted Christ. Christ for the first time. And I can tell you that each one of his three children trusted Christ at Northridge. They're in heaven today, though tragic their death was, they're in heaven today because they had been here. It ruined me. It wrecked me. As a result, I started looking back to see if there was any record of this guy, and there was. We had just done a survey in our church, and I got his survey card out. He'd only been attending for a short time, and he went through and told a story, and on the back of it he said, I need to know how to keep faith in those that I love. I need to know how I can keep faith in those who failed me. I need to know how I can still love people after they failed me so badly. And then he thanked me for making God real to him for the first time in his life. This document right here was filled out, was written on, was held, was handed in by a guy who one month later would have no more opportunities. One month later, wouldn't be able to hear God's truth, wouldn't be able to trust Christ, wouldn't be able to find redemption. As a result, everything about my ministry was reshaped. Because you see, I was going through typical ministry stuff. I was putting together talks, I was leading my team, we were saying the right words, we were singing the right songs. But I wasn't living each day in light of this game-changing principle. Eternity is always on the line. When I stood on the platform that weekend and gave the talk, though I cared about the truth and I was delivering the truth and people were being impacted by the truth, I didn't in my heart of hearts believe that anyone in that auditorium was hearing God's truth for the very last time. That there was a young family that wouldn't be on the planet in that next week. That moment changed me. Eternity is on the line. This thing that we're doing as Christians, as believers, as Christ followers, this thing we're doing as pastors and spiritual leaders and teachers is not a game. After this moment in time, I I literally put this card up in front of my desk and kept it there so that every time I was writing a talk, I wasn't trying to write a talk that was better than the next guy or better than my last one. I was trying to write a talk that engaged God's word in a way that could change a person's life who was desperately needing God in that moment, who might not be here in the next. Jesus left heaven to seek and to save that which was lost, not because it made a great story, but because eternity was on the line. And now we are his representatives. We're his ambassadors here. When I lead the staff and we make staff decisions these days, it's based upon eternity being on the line, not what will make us cool or put us on some list. And as a believer, a simple believer, I have to remember with my neighbors and with my friends and with my family, each moment may be the last moment I ever have. Now, that's not a cliche anymore for me because I received a phone call where it brought it to living reality for me and for our church family. Someone in your life 
right now has eternity on the line. You might never know it. You might never meet them. But you can make the difference between heaven and hell, quite frankly, between light and darkness, between hope and hopelessness, between healing or remaining broken. I had, I believe, in my soul of souls, never really understood. And I believe that I had gotten to the place where each moment of each day, I wasn't praying as if eternity was on the line. I wasn't teaching as if eternity was on the line, and I wasn't leading as if eternity's on the line. Your ministry will change, your life will change, your leadership will change, and your teaching will change when you remember eternity's on the line. Though God used this man to dramatically change my life, I never had the privilege of meeting him. But by God's grace, one day I will. The people you're speaking to, the people you're impacting, you might never know they're there. The question is, will you be the one who plays the game changer in their life? Pretty powerful stuff. Now listen, if you can be a mega church pastor and give your whole life and soul to that, and yet by his own testimony miss the whole purpose for doing it then I think we ought to look at our own hearts because this isn't about Brad Powell it's about me it's about you and the fact that we're going to hear in a few minutes upstairs we can be doing all the things that we're doing we can come to world outreach and I hope you do and we can serve with the kids and with the adults and make desserts and love on missionaries. And I hope we do. But what he just said and what I know is true in my own heart, I can do that and not really do it with a heart that understands that eternity is on the line. So I hope that these eight reasons have motivated you. I hope they will break you. I hope God will burden you to see the reality that what we believe matters, whether we share it matters, and who our Savior is matters greatly because every day eternity is on the line. Let's pray. Father in heaven, break through our hearts, break through our human reason, and shine the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ upon our hearts once again. And let us see how blind and how darkened and how sinful we once were. But you now have reconciled us with the gospel that is preached 2,000 years ago to every creature under heaven and is now entrusted to us to be shared every day in every way with a world that is blinded and in bondage to satanic deception and foolishness. Oh, Father, help us to see that eternity is on the line and help us to align our thinking, our living, and our speaking to reflect that. And we rejoice in the privilege to do so. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Good stuff.